On tonight's episode of Policy for the Masses, you'll notice I got the name right that time, we're going to look at the second oldest piece of legislation in the UK still in force as of 2021. This is of course the Statute of Westminster, the first from 1275. So that was just some Cold War chic there of uh, a number station playing. I'm just playing around with free music and kind of sampling. And I thought that would be something different from the usual kind of generic podcast music. So that was English Lady from the Conet project, which is kind of free recordings of number stations, which has nothing to do with what we're doing today. But I just thought it would be something different. So, what was the Statute of Westminster? It was a set of laws passed by Parliament of England during the reign of Edward I in 1275. The laws comprised 51 chapters, of which one is still in force as of 2021. As always, what are things like at this point? So, Edward I of England, also known as Edward Longshanks and the Hammer of the Scots, was King of England from 1272. So in 1259, he briefly sided the baronial reform movement, supporting the provisions of Oxford. After reconciling with his father, however, he remained loyal throughout the subsequent armed conflict, which we discussed last week, known as the Second Barons' War. Edward was hostage to the rebellious barons, but escaped after a few months and defeated the baronial leader, Simon de Montfort, at the Battle of Eversham in 1265. Within two years, the rebellion was extinguished and England was pacified. Edward joined the Ninth Crusade of the Holy Land and he was on his way home in 1272 when he was informed that his father had died. So making a slow return, he reached England two years later in 1274 and was then crowned at Westminster Abbey. So, you know, it's a middle-aged period. So for two years, England was without a king. But, you know, considering this is the Middle Ages, it... And currently there's a four-month handover from American presidents. It's, it's not too bad. So yeah, Edward spent much of his reign trying to reform the royal administration and the common law through an extensive legal inquiry. So he investigated the tenure of various few liberties and reformed laws around criminal property. However, Edward's attention was increasingly drawn towards military affairs. Subsequently, the rebellion in Wales another rebellion in Wales, an invasion of Scotland. Edward also found himself at war with uh, with France, a Scottish ally, the Earl d'Alliance, as it's commonly known. After King Philip IV of France confiscated the Duchy of Gascony, which up until then had been held in personal union with the King of England. Although Edward recovered his duchy, 
the conflict took the military pressure away from Scotland. At the same time, there was problems at home in the 1290s, extensive military campaigns required high levels of taxation. Edward met with both lay and ecclesiastical opposition. These crises were initially averted, but issues remained unsettled. And when the king died in 1307, he left his son Edward II with an ongoing war with Scotland and many financial and political problems. So as always, you can find this legislation online. Specifically, I would always recommend LegGov. So the one in force chapter states the following. These be the acts of King Edward, son of King Henry, made at Westminster at the first Parliament General after his coronation, on the Monday of Easter Utahs, the third year of his reign, by his council and by the ascendant of archbishops, bishops, abbots, priors, earls, barons, and all of the commonality of the realm, being thither summoned. Because our Lord the King had great zeal and desire to redress the state of the realm in such things, as required amendment for the common profit of Holy Church and of the realm. And because the state of the Holy Church had been evil kept and the prelates and religious persons of the land grieved many ways and the people otherwise entreated that they ought to be and the peace less kept and the laws less used and the offenders less punished than they ought to be by reason therefore of the people Feared the last to offend, the king hath ordained and established these acts underwritten, which he intendeth to be necessary and profitable until the whole realm. And because elections ought to be free, the king commandeth upon great forfeiture that by force of arms, nor by malice or menacing, shall disturb any to make free election. So in summary... Elections should be free and not disturbed by violence. That's that's all that's left in the books at the moment, if that makes sense. So just for further information, that was written in Old French. And I don't intend to read it out in Old French. Also, I nearly got that all in one cut. <laughs> there was just one error. So. so as with all these things, always good for a very brief epitaph of Edward I. So we will be covering other laws done by Edward I, but best have this discussion now and then we can kind of fill it in later. Edward I was a tall man for his era, six foot two, hence the nickname Longshanks. He was temperamental. Along with his height, this made him an intimidating man who often instilled fear in his contemporaries. Nevertheless, he was respected by his subjects and embodied the medieval ideas of kingship. As a soldier, an administrator and a man of faith. So modern historians are divided in the assessment of Edward. Some have praised him for his contribution to law and administration, and others have criticised him for his uncompromising attitude towards his nobility. Currently, Edward I is credited with many accomplishments during his reign, including restoring royal authority under the reign of Henry III, establishing Parliament as a permanent institution, and thereby also a functioning system for tax raising, forming of laws through statute. At the same time, he's often criticised for his other actions, such as his conduct towards the Welsh and the Scots, and also negative conduct towards the Jews, specifically ordering their expulsion. In uh, 1290, Edward issued the Edict of Expulsion. 
and this was by which the Jews were expelled from England. This was kind of a following on from his father's actions uh, where he persecuted the Jews and made it quite difficult for them to kind of function. And this is, this is effectively the next step of that, expelling them from the country. So there's 51 chapters in the Statute of Westminster. I don't want to go into all the repeated ones, but just some of the more interesting ones. So chapter four, subject, that shall be a judged wrecked of the sea. So it's all about kind of sea wrecks, as in it's, it's basically kind of confirming what is a shipwreck. So the interesting thing about this is, although it was passed in 1275, it wasn't repealed in England and Wales until 1863. Chapter 9, all men shall be ready to pursue felons, which kind of slips a bit into the kind of the hue and cry, the, the, the idea of medieval justice where there wasn't really an organised police force, per se. And it was up to the, the, common, the commons, effectively, to police their own areas with a kind of a hue and cry. This wasn't um, repealed in England and Wales till 1887 under the Coroner's Act. Chapter 19, a sheriff having received the king's debt shall discharge the debtor. And again, this wasn't repealed until 1881. Chapter 26, none of the king's officers shall commit extortion, which wasn't repealed until the Theft Act of 1968. Chapter 20 is another interesting one. Offences committed at parks and ponds, specifically robbing of tame beasts in a park which again was still, wasn't repealed until 1827. Chapter 7, in what manner and whom purveyance shall be made for a castle. And this wasn't repealed until 1863. So this kind of shows, this, this is just kind of a smattering, I didn't want to go through all, all 51 in detail, because that would make a very boring podcast, but it kind of shows you where the, where the interest lies at this point. So he's, this is kind of touching on everything really, so it's, it's making sure his actors, be it sheriffs or king's officers, are not double charging people or making sure they effectively let people off. It's kind of reinforcing the idea that, you know, justice should be a kind of a communal practice. And purveyance is a very interesting one, um, which I'm going to kind of touch on now in more detail. So purveyance was an ancient prerogative right of the English crown to purchase provisions and other necessities for the royal household at a praised price and the requisition horses and vehicles for royal use. So, yeah, it it's kind of, the best way of really describing it is, so when Edward I invaded Scotland, basically the, there wasn't much agriculture to take, so they used purveyances. So he needed to feed his army, basically. Um, so the English court had, of old, a right of customary purchase of food for the poor. So this right was called prize. Edward took this and expanded it into what was then called purveyancing, or purveyance. So where the sheriff would buy food at a set price in the shires, and the sellers had to sell at the government price. The government then created a system to store the food. Edward created a convoy system to move the mountains of food from the English Midlands to southern Scotland, which the English controlled. Administrative historians say there's a real triumph in organisational power, but it was also a little bit of a racket because basically Edward paid late and he paid low. You were being forced to sell, so it's, it's you know, the English crown or the English king's not going to default on his debt. What are you going to do if he doesn't pay on time? So it's really interesting because it's kind of it's kind of state buying power almost, almost. Um, 
difficult to describe really, but it, it certainly it would be helpful for winning a war, especially in an area where you can't live off the land, if that makes sense. So yeah, Edward I also employed Provencing, whose Welsh campaigns and Provence was largely the cause of the intense dissatisfaction over Edward's campaign in Gascony. And then in 1298, a nationwide investigation was held into the abuses of royal administrators, including purveyors. Now, if you think about it, it's quite easy to make a lot of money out of this because you, if you're an administrator and you're buying things at a set price, and some of that goes missing, it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting way of kind of profiting, shall we say. There's quite, quite a lot of nebulous ways you can make a lot of money out of this, especially if you're quite bad at keeping records. Prevention continued to be the favoured method of the English kings for obtaining food and other necessities for feeding their armies, supplying their castles and garrisons, and supporting their households. Both Edward II and Edward III used this system heavily, the former in his unsuccessful campaign against Scotland, and then in a civil war against Thomas of Lancaster, and the latter in his relatively successful campaign against Scotland, and then in France during the Hundred Years' War. So again, it was under Edward III the corruption and abuses kind of came to a head and complaints very much intensified during the Hundred Years' War. So that Edward III launched another nationwide investigation and effectively removed most purveyors from office because again, there's such opportunities for corruption in this. However, purveyancing was too valuable a royal privilege to surrender. And it was only in 1362 under intense pressure from Parliament that Edward III agreed to discontinue purveyancing for military use. No key thing there for military use, but again, real opportunity to kind of effectively supply your army in the field at a significantly reduced cost and also reduce the need to kind of live off the land. Unfortunately, the potential of corruption is just quite high. So an interesting part is in the early history, in the early history of the Lordship of Ireland, English statutes were often applied to Ireland. So in 1285, writ authorised Stephen de Fulborn, then just to Garve Island, they apply their English statues, including Westminster I, Westminster II, Gloucester, and those of merchants. And a 1230 Act of the Parliament of Ireland readopted all these statutes. Yeah, so, so this was applying to Ireland as well. And would not be repealed until 1983. So William Stubbs, the famous English historian, says of the Statute of Westminster, this act itself is almost a code. It contains 51 clauses and covers the whole ground of legislation. Its language now recalls that of Canute, that anticipates that of its own day. On one hand, common right is to be done to all, be it rich or poor, without respect to persons. On the other hand, elections are to be free, and no man is by force, mass, or menace to disturb them. So that's where I'll leave it today. If any of this has interested you, please like and subscribe. And equally, I'm setting up a Twitter account. So if you have any comments to make, please zing me on Twitter. If there's any laws you'd like me to look at, let me know. I am working my way through them. Plenty of time left. Equally, I may start looking at ones that are a bit more modern. So, yeah, just, just let me know. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye.